right. Welcome. Good morning. We are super glad that you chose to spend some time with us this morning. I'm going to start off with a poll. Who do you think is more ethical, Christians or atheists? Who do you think lives a more moral life? Who do you think has the most virtuous lifestyle, Christians or atheists? Now, I'm going to make you guys vote in this poll, okay? So if you say, I think Christians, on average, are more virtuous or ethical, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, few of you guys. And if you think, no, nah, it's probably atheists, atheists probably, okay, about half of you guys didn't vote. You guys are wimps. Come on, you scared to take a stand? Scared to choose a side? All right, that's fair. I mean, it's kind of tough to put you in that weird situation. I understand that. But you know, there's been a lot of research that's done on this question as to who or what belief system produces the most ethical people, the most virtuous way of life. The research actually is incredibly clear. And I want to share some of it with you this morning. It turns out there are a ton of research studies that demonstrate that Christians have the most pro-social behavior of all worldviews. It's true. There are a ton of research studies that prove that. So there you go. We've settled the question, right? Can we put that up there? We've settled this question, haven't we? Well, while there are a lot of studies that say that Christians are the most ethical and virtuous people on the planet, it turns out there are an equal number of studies that say that atheists or non-believers are the most ethical and virtuous people on the planet. Okay, well, that clarifies nothing. So then there's this third group of studies, and the third group actually says there is no statistical difference between the ethics of a Christian and a non-Christian. All right, I told you guys that the research is incredibly clear on this subject, and it is. We have no stinking idea who is more ethical. We cannot figure it out because it depends on the study that you design, right? The experiment that you cook up. And then it depends on how you slice the data. There are some circumstances and ways in which people of faith live a more generous or ethical, moral lifestyle. And then there are lots of ways in which people who claim no faith affiliation also would say that they live a more ethical or virtuous lifestyle. Now, despite the fact that there's conflicting research evidence on this, I actually believe that morality represents one of the strongest reasons to believe in our world. And so what we're gonna do is normally throughout this series, I've been giving you kind of one reason to believe, one little piece of evidence for God, but this concept of morality and how it points us to a creator it's so big and it's so important that we have to divide it up into two weeks. So we're going to be talking about it today, and then we're also going to be talking about it next week as well. But we're going to cover different things. I promise it won't be a repeat. So this is week number three of our series, Reasons to Believe. And what we're trying to do here, I mean, we're not doing it perfectly, but we're doing the best we can, I suppose, is we are trying to give evidence to people who are skeptical. Many of you in the, in the crowd today, you're skeptical, and that's wonderful. I'm so very glad that you're here, and you've brought your questions, your doubts, your concerns with you. When I went to church for the very first time when I was 17 years old, I walked in with a real bad attitude. You know what I mean? I, I like knew the pastor had some like deep, deep secrets. We were going to find out that 
that that guy was up to shady stuff on the, you know, during the weeknights and stuff like that. I knew that. And I knew that everybody, everybody in the audience knew that the Bible was baloney, right? They knew it, but they were pretending like they believed it. I mean, I came with a hard sense of skepticism. But I also kept just the tiniest sliver of an open mind because I did enjoy the Sunday services that I attended and the people that I was with seemed like halfway normal folks. And so over time, I began to believe not that God existed, but my first step was to believe that faith in a higher power was at least reasonable. That maybe, like, I, I mean, you guys haven't convinced me yet, okay? But maybe it's at least reasonable to believe that God exists. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do in this series. I'm trying to say, look, independent of the Bible, if you're a skeptical person, I believe there is good reason to have a faith in God, even if you don't take the Bible as seriously as I do. The other thing that we're trying to do is I'm trying to speak to those of you guys who would consider yourselves followers of Jesus, but because of the the world that we live in, you're constantly getting these messages like, how can you be serious, man? You can't believe in some invisible friend in the sky. I thought you were a reasonable person. I, you know, It's hard in the marketplace or in school or on your sports teams or whatever to be a person of faith. And you can almost get the idea that it's totally irrational and that maybe you are a nut job because you believe in God, right? And so what I wanna do is again, just point you towards some evidence that will give you some confidence in your faith. Now, I, I want to highlight this word evidence. I've been doing it every week because it's so very important. This series is about evidence and not proof. I am never going to be able to prove to you that God exists because I'm not that smart. Also, it's impossible. So I'm not going to be able to prove to you that God exists, but I can give you some evidence and then you can weigh the evidence. And also, I'll say this is intended to be a conversation. It's not intended to be a debate. I want to have a discussion about this sort of stuff. And so if there's something I say that you want to ask more questions about, or if you want to disagree or whatever it might be, that's my email address on the screen. You can email me. That's my personal address. Somebody emailed me last week to say, like, did you choose the lightest color gray imaginable just to make it a little harder to get in touch with you? (laughs) Yes. No, it's not true. I'm kidding. It's not true. That's not true. Okay, so those are our two caveats, okay? All right. So what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is each message, I've been challenging or confronting one common narrative in our society about religion or faith or Christianity. And then we've been looking at a piece of evidence that would lead us towards an active faith in God. And so what we'll do over the next two weeks is we'll divide that in half. Today, we'll, we'll challenge a common narrative that I guarantee you many of you have heard about. And then next week, we'll look at the piece of, of direct evidence for God, all right? So let's start with this common narrative. This thing that is said in our world, people accept it as true. It's often used as a way to shut down religion, religious thought, um, religious conversation. One of the things that people will often say in our world is that religion has been the single greatest source of war, genocide, and other evils throughout history. Have you guys ever heard this before? Yeah, I've heard this most definitely. You'll hear this a lot, particularly among academic people, uh, people who are familiar with history. You know, they, they just say it and everybody kind of assumes it's true, right? In fact, um, I, I'm going to throw up on the screen here three quotes from well-known 
atheists, philosophers, whatever you might want to call them here. And in each of these three quotes, the author is basically reinforcing this idea that religion is a source of violence and conflict and hatred, and uh, we should probably think about getting rid of it. And we would be better as a world, better as a society if we did. Last week, we talked about whether faith is good or bad for us as individuals. This week, we're talking about whether it's good or bad for society. And so um, Charles Kimball, he wrote in his book, When Religion Becomes Evil, he says, it is some, uh, somewhat trite, but nevertheless, sadly true to say that more wars have been waged, more people killed, and these days more evil perpetrated in the name of religion than by any other institutional force in human history. Religion is a bad thing, he says. Uh, Chris Hitchens, who wrote the book, God is Not Great, it's a really, really famous uh, work from one of the new atheists. He says, religion is not unlike racism. It is an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicions and hatred. Religion poisons everything. And then one of his colleagues, a guy named Daniel Dennett, he had this to say. He said, you don't get to advertise all the good your religion does without first scrupulously subtracting the harm it does and considering seriously the question of whether some other religion or no religion at all does better. There is this narrative, this story, this commonly accepted assumption in our world that religion is the primary source of conflict throughout history. And if we just didn't have religion, if we could evolve past that, if we could recognize that maybe it had value in times past, but in 21st century, come on, we're beyond all of this. And so if we would let go of our religious faith, then we would have one less thing, maybe even the biggest thing, to, to stop fighting about. But is that really true? It's repeated often, and everybody just kind of accepts it unchallengingly. But is it true that religion, or we might even narrow it down to Christianity if we wanted to, is it true that religion is the primary source of wars and violence and ethnic cleansing in the world? Well, it turns out the answer is pretty easily no. In fact, in the um, Encyclopedia of Wars, which is a real thing, by the way, if you want to do some light bedtime reading, I would suggest you get this 1,400-volume, three-volume set. Uh, If you read the Encyclopedia of Wars, then this is the 2004 edition, and obviously there's been 15 years since then, so maybe these statistics have changed just a little bit, but I guarantee you it ain't a whole lot. According to this Encyclopedia of War, there have been, I believe the numbers, let's put it on the screen, 1,796 recorded wars in history. So throughout history, there have been 1,796 recorded wars. And of those 1,796 wars... Religion was the primary inciting factor in 122 of the conflicts. Or, if you do the math, it's 6.9%. That's it. So this idea that religion is the source of war, and all war, or most war, it turns out to simply not be true. If you go back and you look at the ancient sources, the documents that said, hey, what led to this war? Now, you may have people from two different religious countries or affiliations or faith systems who are fighting, but just because a Hindu and a Buddhist fight doesn't mean they're fighting over Hinduism and Buddhism. They could be fighting over land. They could be fighting over money. They could be fighting over a hot woman. We we don't know. It could be any number of things. Or a hot man. (laughs) Probably less wars fought over hot men. That's not fair. 
I want equality. We need more wars fought over hot men. No, we don't. I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm just, just jokes, guys. I've got to lighten the mood. We're talking about war and genocide this morning. All right. So there's this oft-repeated truth, and when you do the research, you find out that it's just simply not true. Now listen, I will be the very first person to say that that 6.9% is a terrible number. That if that number is anything above zero, we have a responsibility as people of faith to own up to our sin, to own up to our evil, to own up of our justification for violence or hatred or oppression in Jesus' name. We need to own that number. We'll talk about how and why a little bit more in just a few minutes. But I'll tell you, the idea that religion is the primary source of wars and genocide and violence and ethnic cleansing, it is simply not borne out by the data itself. Now, of course, some people really struggle with this, okay? Some people, they just don't want to believe this. In fact, I came across an article that was written by a writer named Jane Claro. She was writing in the Guardian newspaper a few years ago, and she had this to say. It's a very, very interesting quote. She said, Indeed, while the religious have murdered throughout history in the name of their God, I've been unable to find any evidence of atheists killing, one, uh, killing anyone in the name of atheism. Atheism, simply a lack of belief in a God, has not yet proved compelling enough to motivate murder, she said. So far, no one has gone into a crowded public space and blown themselves up while shouting, no God is great. Okay, clever line, Jane, clever, clever, clever. I get it. But is it true? Is it true that no one has committed atrocities in the name of atheism or because of, due to a lack of belief in God. If we were having this conversation in the 1800s, we might actually say, well, there really isn't that much data. We don't have that many examples. I mean, there were people who, may, they might've fit that. But the 20th century, the 1900s, have proven that a lack of religious belief can lead to violence in war just as easily as any other motivation, including religion. The BBC released some data, and they said that if you count up all the deaths of the fascist and communist regimes in the 20th century, so we're talking about Stalin, we're talking, of course, about Hitler, and we're talking about Pol Pot, and we're talking about you know uh, Mao, and all of these guys who had communist and fascist regimes. Part of their ideology was a firm commitment to the fact that there is no God. And when you add up their death toll in the last 100 years, 110 million people died as a result of their philosophy and the wars that they started. So you might expect me to step in at this moment and say, see guys, I told you, Christianity is better. You atheists, you're bad people and we got the proof now. If you become Christian, the world necessarily gets better. It'd be better if we had a Christian nation. I want a Christian candidate back. I know I sound like I'm from Texas, but anyway, like you might expect me to say that, but do you realize that is not what Christianity teaches? Do you know that the Bible never says, Jesus never taught? In fact, Christians have never said, or at least the ones that take Jesus seriously, we're good people, you're bad people. 
We have never said we get it right. We would never go to war for the wrong reasons. We would never use our beliefs to justify hatred, oppression, and violence against other people. Y'all do that, but we don't. Christians would never say that because what the Bible actually teaches is that there is something very broken and bent inside of every single human, whether they're religious or not. And this, this thing, this inclination to hate and oppress and abuse one another, it's present across all religious ideologies because the problem isn't religion, the problem is people. Every person on the planet will find a reason to justify an action they want to take. And sometimes they'll use religion, and sometimes they'll use geography, and sometimes they'll use money, or any number of other things. But as Christians, we don't look at this awful, awful statistic and say, see, atheists are horrible people. Instead, we say, guys, we are all in the same boat. We have all got this wrong. Somehow, some way, some shape or form, we've got to figure this out. Something has got to change because that number 110 million, it represents more people that have died in the last 100 years than died in the previous 19 centuries. We ain't getting better. In fact, it seems like our technology and our opportunities and our tribalism and our power, it's actually causing us to get quite a bit worse. It's also important to note here, and and listen, I don't want to be guilty of this, but listen, when we see somebody in the public square, whether Christian or not, and they are using an argument that that contains seriously flawed logic, we should point it out. And one of the things that I notice as I read this quote in the newspaper is that the writer assumes that when a person of faith, like when the, um, when the Anglo-Saxon Christians decided to march on the Holy Land against the Ottoman Empire, they did it primarily or only because of their faith. But when somebody like Pol Pot kills millions of his countrymen, it has nothing to do with his atheism, nothing to do with his belief system. That is not intellectually honest. The truth of the matter is what we believe about the world, the worldview that we carry, it is the reason that we say and think and do the things that we do. And so, the, the, again, I'll, I'll just go back to the argument that the point is not religion. The problem is not faith. The problem is people. Now, um, Another kind of charge that's made against the church, and I've heard this one many, many times. Um, Another charge that's made against the church is the church was complicit in the African slave trade, right? Oh, I guess we'll go there. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things people say, right? And, and I used to hear this a lot in southern states, right? That's where I'm from. And there would be a lot of people who are like, listen, I don't care what you say. I don't care how you've kind of um, polished your reputation. You will never get me to, to join you guys because of what you've done. For some people, it's war and violence. For other people, it's something like this. And listen, I, I will tell you that, again, the church has a responsibility to own up to its failures, to its sins, to its evil. And because in the places where the African slave trade was happening over the last few hundred years, the the Christian church was the primary faith system, the Christian church bears some responsibility for what happened. 
I do, we do, our ancestors do. Culturally, we do. We gotta own that. And we gotta figure out how to deal with it because we can't just simply put it behind us and pretend like it didn't exist. Because I'll just tell you guys, and you know this is true, although we're not engaged in the slave trade of people, there is still an awful lot of racism and hatred that goes on even in Canada. So we gotta deal with this thing, okay? But this, this, this idea that Christians were the ones who were responsible for the African slave, tra- slave trade and many other sorts of, uh, of evil and things like that. Again, is it true? Is that the actual history or is this the narrative that people have told so loudly and so often that we've accepted it without ever actually examining it? I want to quote quickly for you the, the historian Rodney Stark. And he says this, although it's fashionable to deny it, anti-slavery doctrines began to appear in Christian theology soon after the decline of Rome. And they were accompanied by the eventual disappearance of slavery in all but the fringes of Christian Europe. So I want to pause right here because he delves into this um, a little bit more strongly in his book, but I just want to highlight something. That slavery was the norm in the ancient world. And according to him and a whole bunch of other secular historians, by the way, Christianity was the single force that catalyzed the end of slavery in the old world. I know that's a bold statement. I know they didn't tell you that in university. But if you go read it for yourself, it was the fundamental conviction of Christians that believed that every person was created in God's image and therefore nobody deserved to be enslaved that led to the fall of slavery in the old world. Now, of course, as he mentions here, Western Europe, they got the message a little late. And so they actually took slavery to a whole other level. We don't have to go into all the details. You know them quite well. But I want to show you what what Mr. Stark says here. He says, when Europeans subsequently instituted slavery in the New World, they did so over strenuous papal opposition, the Pope. Now, the Pope is not like, I I don't really recognize the authority of the Pope. I'm a Baptist. But just the same, it's interesting to note that the vast majority of Christians around the world were looking at the white people going, what are you guys doing? This is not what Jesus taught us. How could you do this and then baptize it in the name of our Savior? Then he points out that finally, the abolition of New World slavery was initiated and achieved by Christian activists. That again, it was the belief that every single person was created in God's image and therefore deserving of dignity and respect. Everybody is an equal heir of the salvation offered through Jesus. It was this conviction that eventually toppled slavery as an institution in both the old world and the new. So yeah, listen, Christianity has gotten it wrong sometimes. There are sections of Christianity, even the parts that I belong to, that have gotten it horribly wrong. And I won't pretend that there won't be times in the future where the church gets it horribly wrong. If history teaches us anything, it's that if we drift from the teachings of Christ, we will find ourselves not sacrificing, not living generously, 
not loving and offering dignity and worth to everyone, but instead will use our scripture and our faith to do what we think is best and to treat people the way we think they deserve to be treated. But can I point out to you that when we, when we highlight the sins of the church in the pastor today, what we're saying is that Christians are not being Christ-like enough. That's what we're saying. We're saying Jesus would never say that. Jesus would never do that. So the narrative in our world today, in 2019, is, listen, the Christians are getting it wrong just as often as everybody else. So what we need to do is less Christ, less Christ, less Christianity, less church. Let's just get rid of religion. But the answer to Christians who are not Christ-like enough is not less of Jesus, it's more of Jesus. We need more of Christ in our world. Come on, are you telling me that you wouldn't want a neighbor who behaved and thought and spoke like Jesus? You wouldn't want a politician who valued people the way that Jesus did? The answer that we're seeking, you could argue it's less church, and maybe I won't even fight you on that, but I will fight you tooth and nail on the idea that what we need is less Jesus. I think what we need is more of Christ, more of his love more of his grace, and even more of his truth. I think that's what we're missing in our world. So, all right, let's, let's start to land this plane here. Um, is Christianity a net negative? Is it bad for society? Are we worse off because we have this institution known as the church. Well, look, in order to do that, I wanna kind of just remind you of what Daniel Dennett said in one of our earlier quotes. He said, listen, you can't quote the good unless you're willing to acknowledge the bad. So I've spent a good bit of time this morning acknowledging and owning the bad that we've done. Fair? Like, I haven't glossed over it. It's true, it's horrible. And what I'm about to say, it doesn't offset this. These are not balances and we're like, oh, there's more on the good side or more. It's not what it is. But we acknowledge the bad. We also do have to acknowledge the good that the church does and has done and will continue to do in the world today. And so I might point out to you that although this is not a popular notion in our world, the fact is that nearly every major social welfare institution in our society was begun by Christians out of love or respect, obedience and devotion to the teachings of Christ. This is true. So if you go back and you study, where did the concept of a hospital begin in history? How did that come about? Do you know what you'll find out? You will find Christians who believe everybody is created in God's image, therefore no one deserves to suffer, and so they will begin a place in which care can be given to people, regardless of their ability to pay, regardless of their culture or gender, regardless of their social status. This is true. Historians point to this as one of the reasons the Roman Empire collapsed, because they continued to fragment their society so that there were people who were not considered people, and there were emperors who were considered gods. And then Christianity came along and said, nah, everybody is created equally in the image of God. So everybody deserves our care and help. If you look at, at higher education, universities, at least in the modern sense, they were created out of a Christian understanding of the world. We're going to get into this in another week or two, but believe it or not, science as you know it came about because of Christians. They did. 
Because it used to be that people assumed that the world was chaotic and crazy and how could you ever know it? But then a group of Christians, some very, very smart ones whose names you'll recognize, said, well, wait a sec. If there is a God who created things and he wanted us to learn about the world, there should be an order and a logic that he has built into it. Things should be testable and predictable. And so they invented this discipline called science because of their fundamental belief that God wanted to reveal himself in the nature he created. But we'll get into that another day. Orphanages started as we know them today by Christians who said no child should be homeless. Clean water initiatives around the world in 2019 are primarily led by people of faith. Efforts to combat malaria. And we could go on and on and on. Soup kitchens and homeless shelters and a million other things as well. These institutions, they got their start from Christians who took the teachings of Christ very seriously. Now look, I know somebody's gonna stop me in the hallway and they're like, bro, did you know in China they were doing this in 2000 BC? You're right, you're right. I'm not saying that these are the only people that are doing humanitarian relief work. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, as institutions, as, as these formal parts of our society where we believe that these things should be happening, that we have a moral obligation to care for those who don't have the resources we have, I will stake my life on the fact that this came from the teachings of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There is no doubt about the impact that his words have had on the development of the modern world. So listen, Christianity has done a lot of bad stuff, no doubt. Christianity's done a lot of wonderful things too. And I don't want us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have to do what Mr. Dennett told us. We have to look at the bad and acknowledge it. We also have to look at the, the good and acknowledge it as well. And my belief is that the, okay, now you've seen the light. <laughs> my belief is that Christianity, despite all the horrible things it may have been associated with, has also wrought great good. And it has the potential to continue to bring good, 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 good more good into our world. And so I'll end with this thought that he's gonna shut that off. I know it's bright. I see some of you guys putting on your shades. <laughs> this is very challenging to me because in 2019, we as Christians have a tendency to define our morality by what we don't do. I'm a Christian. So I don't get high. I'm a Christian. So I try not to embrace porn. I'm a Christian. So I don't cheat on my wife. I'm a Christian. So I don't steal things that don't belong to me. I'm a Christian. So I don't say those kind of words. I'm a Christian. So I would never set foot in that kind of building. And that's not bad. But can I tell you, the church of Christ changed history. Not because of what they were against, but because of what they were for because of what they were willing to do, because of what they were willing to give, because of how they were willing to live. 
And so listen, if in 2019, one of the predominant narratives is Christianity can't be trusted. It's a source of bad and not good. That's on me and you. If we claim the name of Christ, that's on us. If my neighbor would say, I don't know any Christians. I don't know any good ones anyway. That's on me. If our society says, if they actually have to debate whether or not Christianity is a net positive or a net negative to our world, we've got some work to do. Listen, yes, we as Christians, I mean, Connect Church has got some work to do. You have some work to do. Daniel has some work to do because the message of Jesus is too wonderful for us to miss out on the opportunity to make a difference and to change the world because of what Christ has to say. Let me just read you this last passage of scripture. This is it. Isaiah chapter number 58, verses one through nine. Look at what God says here. He says to the prophet Isaiah, I want you to tell my people, they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and they seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they wanna be near me. They say, we have fasted before you. Why aren't you impressed, God? We have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even seem to notice. I showed up at 7.30 today. I'll tell you, I'm not picking our dream team. You guys know I love my dream team. I showed up at 9.58, okay. I was here on time, God. Did you not notice? I will tell you why. God responds. It's because you're fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? What kind of fa- that kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and you cover yourselves with ashes. That was a way of dressing appropriately for church, by the way. But is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting that I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from your relatives who need your help. Dang, he's reading some mail today. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will quickly answer, yes, I am here. Listen, we've got a responsibility as Christians to act like Christ. It would be such a shame if Christians were the reason that non-Christians are not Christians. So as followers of Jesus, man, you've got to start opening your mind. How can I serve? How can I give? How can I be who Jesus needs me to be to alleviate the suffering, to set captives free, to make a difference in our world? We got to figure this out or we will die. We will pass away. 
the, the world will continue to despise us or at least be skeptical of us. That's my word to Christians. Now, those of you guys who are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I wanna be incredibly careful that I do not give you the wrong idea about what a, what a relationship with God looks like. Because a relationship with God is not based on whether or not we are good people. Okay? So God was not speaking to skeptical, non-religious people in Isaiah 58 saying, hey, listen, if you guys don't start behaving down there, I'm going to get you. He wasn't saying, if you want to have a relationship with me, then you better start doing this and not doing this. It wasn't about rules. It isn't about morality. Instead, it goes back to what I said earlier, that every single person on the planet, we seem to be bent inward on ourselves. We seem to be so focused on me and what's going to make me happy and make my life pleasurable and get me status and get me love and get me pleasure. We seem to be so focused on that, that we will hurt one another in order to make it happen. And that's everybody, religious and not. So God didn't institute a religion that says you need to be good in order to be accepted. Instead, he sent Jesus so that we could be accepted, period, end of story. But here's the great thing. When you see what Jesus has done for you, your life changes. You don't want to live for you anymore. You want to live for something bigger something more meaningful, something eternal. Listen, if you become a millionaire before you die, guess what? You're still gonna die. You can't take it with you. You could have tons of Instagram followers and then everybody's gonna stop caring about Instagram and everybody's gonna forget you. You could have a hot wife or a hot husband. They're gonna get old and saggy. Like the stuff that we base our lives on, it's so temporary, it's so fleeting. And God says we have a world full of injustice and I want you to step in and do something about it. I wanna empower you to go do that. But until you submit and surrender to God and his grace and forgiveness in your life, you're gonna be fighting that inward battle, thinking it's about you. You'll even try to prove yourself by doing good in God's name, and that won't get you anywhere either. So I wanna pray for Christians that you would step out into your divine calling as agents of love and goodness and justice and generosity in the city of Calgary. And I wanna pray for those of you guys who say, hey, listen, I don't want a religion that's based on rules and based on pressure and based on guilt. I want a, re a religion, a relationship with God that is based on love and grace and doing something to make a difference in the world. If that's you, then I'm gonna pray for you. And you say, hey, Dan, I wanna be included in your prayer. I'm gonna ask you to just slip your hand up. That's it. If you say, hey, this is me, I want you to consider me, pray for me. All right, a couple of you guys, I wanna pray for you. Jesus, you know those who've raised their hand this morning, who've said they want a relationship with you that's not based on their performance, but it's based on what you have done on their behalf those who wanna make a difference in the world. They believe in goodness. They believe in justice. And God, they wanna be your agents of change in the world. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would give them the understanding that they cannot be agents of God's change unless they have God in their lives. And so I pray that they would submit to you. They would ask for your forgiveness and that God, they would allow your Holy Spirit to indwell them and then guide them every single day. And I pray for Connect. God, I pray that you would remind us that we are here for your kingdom's sake, not for ourselves, not for our own pursuits, but for things that are eternal, things that really matter. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.